90 Afghans are being held at a detention centre in Camp Bastion. Is this Britain's Guantanamo Bay? Europe lifts the ban on arming the Syrian rebels while Russia sends the regime an air defence system. Is this a proxy war? And a new exhibition explores the relationship between conflict and children's play by looking at the games and toys influenced by war. Hello, I'm Claire Sadler, in for Kate Jabot. The Defence Secretary, Philip Hammond, has denied allegations that up to 90 suspected Afghan insurgents being held at Camp Bastion's detention centre are being detained illegally or in secret. Lawyers acting for some of the suspected insurgents claim they are victims of unlawful detention and internment. In a moment, we'll hear from international affairs analyst Martin McCauley from University College London and, of course, our own defence analyst Christopher Lee. But first, let's go to Camp Bastion and talk to our reporter, Will Inglis. Will, what do you know about this situation? Well, the very nature of the conflict, what's going on here in Helmand province, means that prisoners are going to be taken. Of course, efforts to disrupt the insurgency mean that suspected Taliban fighters, bomb makers, commanders and more are regularly captured and taken into custody. Of course, it's what happens next that has become something of an issue. They are supposed to be either released or handed over within 96 hours of capture. But that's not been happening for the last six months or so. And lawyers have been uh, saying that it's a secret prison. Is it a secret prison? Well, not really. It's inspected pretty regularly, we're told, by the International Committee of the Red Cross. And in fact, MPs on the House of Commons Defence Committee visited just last year. Now, as with a lot of the stuff going on here, you aren't allowed to take photographs of it, for instance. But that isn't to say it is particularly secret, or its existence at least. There is even a sign outside. So why exactly are these detainees being held there for so long? Well, since late last year, uh, when a legal challenge was brought by the same team of lawyers involved here, in fact, there's been a ban on handing prisoners over to the Afghan authorities for fear that they could be tortured. And that's caused the numbers being held here in Camp Bastion to rise, as you might imagine. Of course, some of these men are believed to be extremely dangerous. And so simply releasing them could endanger British troops or Afghan troops or indeed uh, Afghan civilians. And that means that these men really are stuck in the system until the government in London gets the assurances it needs from the government in that anyone handed over isn't going to be mistreated. Of course, despite the MOD's insistence that they are therefore effectively protecting these detainees' rights by holding them, their lawyers remain convinced that they are being held illegally. OK, BFBS reporter Will Inglis, thanks for joining us. Well, I'm joined in the studio now by Martin McCauley and Christopher Lee. Welcome to both of you. Martin, some have called this detention centre Britain's Guantanamo. Do you think that is the situation? No, that's going far too far. Uh, Guantanamo was extremely difficult for the Americans. Uh, Obama said that uh, it was a disgrace and uh, that uh, the detainees would be released under his presidency. That was five years ago. In other words, when you uh, arrest and detain uh, a suspected terrorist, it's an extremely complicated and detailed process, uh, and it's an embarrassment to the U.S. government, uh, and they haven't solved it yet. But these uh, Afghans are presumably have been have been presumably been uh, uh, captured uh, because they were active. 
they were planting IEDs uh, and they were fighting and so on, so therefore it's quite legitimate to capture them. But it's also a legitimate point that you don't hand them over to the Afghan authorities because you fear they might be uh, uh, might be tortured or something like that. Uh, and uh, until you get assurances, uh, what do you do? You just keep them. So therefore the trouble is uh, that, in fact, more and more may in fact uh, end up in this situation mm. uh, until the uh, situation becomes very, very embarrassing. Christopher, do, do you agree with Martin? Does it go too far to say it's Britain's Guantanamo? Yeah, you see, what do you have? Uh, Guantanamo has given us a picture of some of the sad parts, the evil parts, as some would say if you live in the United States, of what you do with detainees, prisoners, etc. And so it's easy shorthand. Uh, the difference, there are two diff main differences, of course, is that the uh, Guantanamo, um, they've picked up people from almost anywhere, anywhere they thought was a threat to the to, to continental United States, uh, not to the battle that's going on in Afghanistan. The second part of it is that there is a movement in the United States that the people that are in Guantanamo ought to be taken out and tried in the civilian courts in, in, in the United States. That hasn't happened, and one of the reasons it hasn't happened is that Congress is objecting to it, etc. Let's put this in some sort of perspective. Um, this is a detention centre, an interrogation centre, um, in a battle zone. When you pick up somebody, you want to know, you interrogate them for a number of reasons, but the three main reasons, you want to know uh, tactical I interrogation you want to know what might be happening in the next 24 hours, 48 hours. The second part of it is you want to know the structure of the organisation they're working mm. with, where it is, what sort of capabilities they've got. And the third part of it, which is very, very important, you want to know the personalities. Now, you can hold people for a long time to get that information. Also, you don't necessarily know what to do with them next. You charge them. Or do you just hold them as if they're prisoners of war? In a war zone, it's much better to do that, but you're not supposed to keep them for 96 hours. And there is the difficulty. Hand them over to the Afghans. Uh, well, the alternative would be to train the Afghan uh, uh, people, A, interrogation techniques, mm -hmm. and how to hold people. Well, the British couldn't even do that in Northern Ireland successfully, so why they expected it in Afghanistan? And there you have the conundrum for the... For the, for the Defence Secretary, Philip Hammond. Well, the Defence Secretary was under pressure yesterday, wasn't he? And actually, last night, he said that he expects the transfers of detainees to the authorities to resume shortly. But the problem is, surely the lawyers aren't going to be happy with that either. What no, Shiner, who is the, uh, it's the Shiner, who is the main lawyer of this, uh, he's got a conundrum as well. You know, you mustn't hold these people. Mm -hmm. OK, what do you do with them? Just supposing you release them and they get themselves killed. Or, or, or whatever, or they go back and you pick them up later on for planting an IED. That is part of the difficulty. But we're talking there. His point is on the human rights thing. I tell you the most interesting part of this is that supposing you hang on and you keep the detention centre open, let's say, till next year, and next year we start to withdraw from Afghanistan, then what do you do? Do well, you just open the door and say, look, we're actually sort of bogging off home? Well, Martin, uh, you this, may as well this, go yourself. This is you what, hand them over to the Afghan the, authorities. Which because, is what the Americans have done, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, because it, uh, sooner or later, it's an Afghan problem. And, uh, the, uh, and you don't care. <laughs> basically, it's their problem. And they have to solve it in, in some way or other. And you just leave. Hmm. OK, Martin, Christopher, stay with us. 
still to come. Still no settlement for defence spending. Will the MOD meet the Treasury's demands? And battleships, G.I. Joe and Airfix kits. The new exhibition exploring the relationships between warfare and child's play. The Syrian president says his army has the balance of power in the country's civil war. It's reported Bashar al-Assad has told a Lebanese TV station that the Syrian army has scored major victories against the rebels. He's also quoted as saying that Syria has received the first shipment of an advanced Russian air defence system. Moscow said it was being forced to send the S-300 system to the country to prevent Western hotheads from intervening in civil war. Russia is angry that Britain has persuaded the European Union Union not to renew an embargo on supplying weapons to Syria's opposition forces. Martin McCauley, so why did the EU decide to end this embargo? That's a very good question because uh, some countries were very, very strongly against it. France and Britain were very, very strongly in favour, but in the end they carried the day. Uh, You look at Qatar and Saudi Arabia, they're supporting the rebels. They want, uh, if you like, the Sunnis, uh, the Islamists there to win. And the European Union, the vast majority of people in the European Union, don't want to become involved. This is a civil war uh, uh, between and among Syrians and so on, with other Arab states uh, really fighting a proxy war. And why should we become involved? But Britain and France, they want to go ahead because there's also defence contracts. Uh, uh, it's an extremely important uh, region. And they want to become involved. And they want to be on the winning side. And they believe that Assad will go. Whereas Russia and China will make sure that Assad stays, Sir, uh, Iran and Hezbollah, uh, Hezbollah is already fighting with the uh, uh, the Syrian army. Uh, Iranians are providing are providing advice and so on. And China and Russia will ensure that Assad is not militarily defeated. Mm. Christopher, is it also partly about putting pressure on Assad to come to the negotiating table? Could that be part of it? Well, that's what, the, that's what William Hay, the Foreign Secretary, um, and the people advise him think, that if you actually arm the rebels, then uh, Assad will say, I'm coming to the negotiating table. This, at the moment, looks an absolute stupid, shabby intellectual argument. And the reason for that is this. Uh, Assad, as Molly said, yeah, we're going to come. It's the rebels we've got a problem. Can I just put this in some sort of perspective, right? Um, William Hague wants to give the Syrians uh, see, loads of guns. Uh, and he says if we give the Syrian rebels loads of guns, um, that will be fine. Except the Syrian rebels are fighting among themselves already. So you've got the revolutionary movement uh, in Syria. These are the rebels who are on the inside. And they're giving an absolute fanging to the Syrian coalition for Syrian revolution opposition. These are the guys that are living in nice hotels on the outside. And so they're fighting each other. Now, Haig thinks he's going to be giving the guns to the good guys. But mm. what happens when they get involved with the bad guys, i.e. the Al-Qaeda sort of sign-ups so, for... Arming now, jihadists. Well, you've got 11 or so different different rebel groups. And they'll use the weapons, and they'll use the weapons against Assad. If they beat him, then they'll start killing each other until last month man standing actually gets you know gets into the power in, uh, in, in Damascus. So then you've got two proxy wars. You've got Russia fighting America for regional authority... And it's doing this, and it gives these um, these 300 uh, missiles. Incidentally, it's not sudden, such a sun, sudden thing. That was signed in 2007. Gives those to Assad. And as he says to Assad, the Russians say to Assad, Look, here are the air to, um, service-to-air missiles. You can knock out American planes if they come and put up a, a, a no-fly zone. Then you've got the other war that's going on. You've got the Sunnis. 
and they're led by the Saudis because the Saudis are Sunnis, right? Mm. And they're fighting the Shias led by Iran. So you've got Saudi Arabia and Iran fighting each other as a proxy war. And then France is supporting the United Kingdom. Guess why? Because they, France, think, hang on, the Brits are going to start getting defence contracts with the Saudis. We'd better get in there and make sure we don't lose on out on those contracts. In other words, you've got a messy civil war about which nobody in their common sense would normally get into it, except that there's a lot of a billion, not million, billion-dollar contracts at the end of it. Mm. Uh, Britain and France have uh, apparently agreed to delay any arms shipments in, until August. Martin, do you think that they will wait that long? Do you think... Uh, there'll be tremendous pressure. The the Syrian opposition always claiming they don't have the uh, arms. If you give them the arms, they say they will win. They will not win. Uh, if you look at the most effective uh, forces, they are the Islamists, uh, al-Nusra organization, uh, and some of the Syrian opposition have defected to them and so on. Uh, will they go to Geneva to talk, talk to al-Assad? Of course not. They want to control their part of Syria, and I think what we're looking at is really a breakup of Syria in about three areas, uh, and that's the best, uh, probably the best combination that uh, that is possible. But there's no there's no way that Assad uh, will in fact concede because he says I'm staying here, I'm going to die here, and so on. Uh, Iran and Hezbollah say we're going to defend them. China and Russia say we will defend them. Uh, and why is Britain and France getting involved? Uh, it's, the, it's a losing situation. It's interesting, isn't it, Martha, the, uh, the way the Americans have sort of backed off from this mm. whole thing. Mm. And the Americans say, well, we're not going to put any boots on the ground. You do that, you get the heads blown off. And so what were the best that you can expect them to do? And that was what uh, Obama's lot were talking about. So, well, perhaps we ought to contribute it to a, a no-fly zone. So the Russians say, well, by the way, under that 2007 contract, we can put service-to-air uh, service missiles in there. That will squash that one on the, on the head. Don't forget, we talk about the rebels. The British government talks about supplying the rebels and bringing Assad to heel. The rebels have been meeting, for example, in, in, in Turkey... Uh, it was supposed to be a two-day meeting. It started last week. They got kicked out of their hotels because they were having a go at each other. And then there was a party coming in from Scunthorpe, of all places. I mean, Scunthorpe gets into the initial scene. I love Scunthorpe. But it gets into the initial Syrian debate, doesn't it? Because it kicks out the, the, the Syrian rebels from the hotel because they're already booked in. But why are they still there? They're there because the very thing that Martin's talking about, this, this conference, peace conference, mm. they cannot decide among themselves whether or not they will go. And so Who will, will be going? Well, the moment is only a Syria who's, uh, the Syrian leader, Assad, who says he'll go, but who else will go who's got any count? But, but the opposition say they will only go if Assad says he will go. So therefore they put this precondition, which is a non-starter because so Assad mean, is uh, sorry, not going to go. Uh, Assad himself we're talking about, aren't we? As opposed to, or he gets out of the country. No, Assad would say, I'll go, of course I'll go. Uh, uh, but the opposition says, no, we will not uh, talk to Assad because he has to go first. And of course you can only do that if you won the civil war. Mm. In other words, it's a non-starter. Okay, briefly, Martin, there's, there's been news this morning that Russian liberal Sergei Griev has fled Moscow and his friends are saying he escaped President Putin's threat. Some say Putin is the new Stalin. What do you think about that? <laughs> well, Glazev, Sergei Glazev has been a, uh, a left-wing 
uh, economist and uh, close to Putin over the last few years. Uh, he believes in state capitalism, the domination of state corporations, uh, spending enormous amount of money in the, on, on the military and so on. And the difficulty for him now is that the Russian economy is slowing down, and this may be one of the reasons why he's leaving, but he's really left-wing, and uh, there seems to be a battle between him and uh, other economists such as Kudrin and so on. Now, Putin is not Stalin. He doesn't have that He'd like power. to be. He, well, he might like to be. He's got all the, uh, uh, the apparel of Stalin and so on, and he's brought back so many things. And Volgograd, uh, which is the Battle of Stalingrad, it changes its name on VE Day, which is the 9th of May, to Stalingrad and goes back there to Volgograd and so on. He'd like to be Stalin, but he doesn't have the power uh, and uh, basically the economy is slowing down and he has to find scapegoats. Okay, thanks, Martin. Let's move on. Colchester Garrison has said goodbye to its last MOD police officer. Defence cuts have meant many MOD police jobs have been scrapped. BFBS reporter Liz Mullen has spoken to Colchester's Garrison commander, Colonel Mike Newman, and local MP Sir Bob Russell about the changes. And she started by asking Colonel Newman how he felt about losing the last MOD PC. Well, it is obviously very sad to say goodbye to um, PC Andy Grange. Um, because he has epitomised everything that the MOD police have professionally done over the last decade or more uh, and been a real servant for the garrison, particularly the garrison families. He's been there whenever they needed him. Uh, He's been a very reassuring presence, uh, and even though he's only been with us for a year, he's definitely a, a great ambassador for the MOD police, and I personally want to pay tribute both to him and to the MOD police and thank them for all that they've done. And it's sad that um, we won't see them in the future, but uh, you never know. So Bob Russell has worked on it for quite a long time, and he might be able to bring a, a, a magic wand into play, and if they do come back, then I, for one, will think it, it, it a good thing. Thank you, Colonel. Well, here is Sir Bob Russell, Colchester's MP. Uh, now, Sir Bob, you have been campaigning, fruitlessly as it turns yeah. out, to keep the MOD police in the garrisons, especially Colchester. Well, this has been going back several years. It actually started during the period of the last Labour government when there were 33 MOD police officers based here at the Colchester Garrison and we're witnessing here what I hope is the uh, closing of a chapter rather than the end of the book because frankly the last government and the current government getting rid of MOD police officers from Colchester is barking absolutely mad and that's the point that I've made with personal meetings with ministers both Labour ministers and the current coalition ministers Um, I'm a member of the Defence Select Committee, I've raised it there and I'll continue to raise it. I think it's important for the army families in Colchester and indeed the wider community that we have dedicated police officers, Ministry of Defence police officers, out and about around the army housing, with the army schools, uh, where the army community is operating. The notion that the Essex Constabulary can find police officers to replace the 33 MOD police officers we once had is absolutely not going to happen and indeed the Essex police is cutting their numbers as well. Mm. So I think this is a sad day, clearly a sad day, but I'm hoping that in due course wiser counsel will prevail and I'll be able to continue to argue that what we need back in Colchester is Ministry of Defence police officers being part of the wider army family. Okay, that was Colchester MP Sir Bob Russell talking to BFBS reporter Liz Mullen. Christopher, there's one example there of how defence cuts are affecting army garrisons and the Chancellor says that there are more to come. That's right. You see, going back to that particular garrison, Andy Grange, who is what used to be in a pejorative term called the surviving mod plot, um, he is an absolute star there. 
and it's one officer who is a star. It's the principle that you get in arguments about policing in the United Kingdom. You put somebody on the beat, he's visible, it, it sort of saves the problem. They once had 30, I think it was 30 uh, policemen there, but he's doing the same job. Essex police can't do it. That's the problem. I think it's going to get a rethink. And I don't think that Bob Russell's going to let it go. And I think that the uh, House of Commons Defence Committee is going to have another look at it. But it's a bigger story, isn't it? Um, the Chancellor of the Exchequer is eyeballing the Defence Secretary, Philip Hammond, and says, you've got to make <coughs> more cuts because I need more money. Home Office, the Business Office and the MOD have got 80% of the money that the Chancellor is trying to save at the moment. Mm. And Philip Hammond, who fancies himself as Prime Minister one day, is saying, you're not going to get it from me, well, not without a fight. And so I think the MOD, how much are we going to lose, is going to sort of go on forever, except at the end of July, there's going to be more cuts at the MOD anyway announced. OK, and very, very briefly, what about these aircraft carriers? You've seen these reports that they might never get used by the Royal Navy. Uh, there's a story going around that they will continue to be built and that there may be simply not enough funds because if you have an aircraft carrier, you're going to have, say, six destroyers or six frigate uh, escorts, etc. They may not be. And already people are talking about looking around the international market to find if anybody wants maybe one uh, aircraft carrier. Oh, dear. Not the, good. The Chinese. The Chinese will buy it. Yeah. Chinese want it. Chinese want it. This is BFBS. Sit, Red. So, Christopher, did you enjoy a game of battleships as a child? Were uh, you into it? I still do. <laughs> I still do. I have to tell you, sort of, if somebody was in the Navy, I, 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 I always won. <laughs> well, toys and games such as G.I. Joe, Risk, Airfix Kits and Toy Soldiers are being displayed as part of a new exhibition at the V&A Museum of Childhood. War Games explores the relationship between conflict and children's play and looks at the way toys have been influenced by warfare over the last 200 years. SITREP's Kate Jabot has spoken to the exhibition's curator, Sarah Wood, and asked her if she was surprised by the number of toys associated with war. Absolutely. I mean, when we when we've been developing this exhibition, we've um, been delving into our um, reserve stores of objects and um, looking at research in other museums as well. It's it, it it's been a, a large part of the material culture of childhood for for many years now. Um, and our exhibition covers the last two hundred years, with the earliest object being from about eighteen ten right up until um, the most modern objects, um, which have been bought recently, including a Black Hawk helicopter. And what else have you got? You say it goes back to the 1800s. What sort of things have you got on display and how do they reflect the attitudes towards warfare? One of the main sections of the exhibition is called On the Battlefield and this is a chronological section which looks at the changing nature of um, warfare through the toys that have been made. And one of the things that surprised me the most is this, the, 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 the variance, the variety of, of, of toys that have been made. It's not just lots of sets of toy soldiers. Um, it's lots of different things through comics, through books um, and board games as well. The exhibition starts by looking at... Um, it shows, it shows the changing nature of warfare. So, for instance, some of the earlier objects, charts, um, ceremonial figures um, such as um, Lord Roberts, um, personality figure dolls. But you're looking at the types of ways that warfare was fought. So we have um, lots of infantry and cavalry. And then you get introductions of things like naval power, the importance of the, the Navy to countries like Britain. Um, and as that moves through time, you see you know, technological shifts happening. And these are very much closely reflected and accurately reflected within within the toys. So, for instance, when tanks start to be deployed in the First World War, 
toy tanks are very, very quickly um, made to represent that to children. And you noticed a particular shift during the Vietnam War, didn't you? Yes, I mean, particularly um, in the American market, um, for instance, from um, 1964 is when G.I. Joe was launched and he was the first action figure for boys. Um, so he sort of largely replaced the sort of the armies of toy soldiers that had happened before and was sort of an, an innovative marketing idea. Um, he was launched in 64, but as conflict increased and public distaste for the war continued towards the end of the 60s, um, the public fell out of love a little bit with G.I. Joe and the company who produced him, Hasbro, decided to ad adapt him, really. And so he, you could still buy um, military forms, but he became an adventurer who was, who was non-military. How have toys been used as secret tools for propaganda and espionage? Well, I mean, this is this is one of the most interesting things that I think has come out of the exhibition. Not, not toys are toys are never really innocent things, and and have been used to um, for a variety of ways to train and influence. And we've found an awful lot of toys have, have represented sort of propaganda. And um, can you give some examples? Sure. We, well, we've got um, one of the um, most interesting ones. I think is some. Um, building blocks so you're, you're starting at looking at children very young um, and these are building blocks that we've borrowed from um, the Spilzeuge Museum in Nuremberg um, and they're just very simple wooden shapes but you can spell out um, a variety of things including well three things really it can spell Hitler it can spell Adolf and it can also be put, put onto a puzzle board to make a swastika so it's really mm -hmm. sort of lots of objects that are sort of instilling ideas of a sense of nationalism or, or, or particular political belief well, that was Sarah Wood, the curator of the War Games exhibition at the V&A's Museum of Childhood, talking to Kate Jabot. Yeah, it's usually Kate. She's, you know, Kate's very horsey, and she thinks life's about shoving hay down one, down, down one end and sweeping up at <laughs> the other, you know. Um, and I think she thinks all war games should be sort of military Jim Connors, and probably she's got a point there. <laughs> a £35 million museum built to house Henry VIII's flagship, the Mary Rose, was officially opened in Portsmouth today. It reunites the Tudor warship with the Thousands of artefacts recovered from the wreck. Tim Cooper is in Portsmouth. Tim, what's been taking place there today? Oh, a whole range of stuff, Claire. We laid a wreath at the side where the Mary Rose sank. Eleven gun salute from Fort Blockhouse in Gosport. The bell from the Mary Rose was taken to the newest ship in the Royal Navy, HMS Duncan, and some flaming archers loosed their arrows across the sun. A bit amazing. And how much of the ship can visitors to the museum actually see? Well, pretty much the same amount as they could have seen before, but now they've stopped spraying it in due course, they'll be able to get a much better view. And they've recreated the other side of the ship, as it were, so you get a real sense of the size and scale of this vessel. Uh, and they've used some sort of state-of-the-art technology to recreate this, haven't they? Absolutely right, yes. I mean, the museum is ostensibly about this, this very, very old and ancient vessel, but it uses the latest and innovative technology inside it. And the museum is much more about than just the Mary Rose structures. It's about the artefacts. There are thousands upon thousands of almost pristine Tudor artefacts that were picked out of the sea, which haven't been able to be displayed until now. Um, earlier on today, I caught up with Robert Hardy, the TV actor Cornelius Fudge in the Harry Potter films, if you will. He's also an expert on the longbow and Tudor times, and he told me a little about the museum. The museum is beyond belief. It is the realisation of the wildest imaginative dreams... Every gun, 
everything that is exhibited is straight from the Mary Rose, all genuine stuff. So it's a, it's a time capsule. Time capsule, certainly, Robert Hardy there. You get a real sense of what it would have been like to serve on the warship. And I've had a look around the museum. I've been to the previous one, and this one is far, far, far better. And if you've been before, it's certainly worth having another look just to get a sense of Tudor times. OK, Tim Cooper in Portsmouth, thank you. Well, Christopher, it's time now for us to, to consider any other other business to look ahead to. Yes, yeah, just very quickly, you know, Tim was saying there that Mary Rose is all genuine stuff. Not like the victory done at Portsmouth. I mean, most of that's fiberglass now. I mean, it's absolutely astonishing. You go try, if you go try and lick a, a, a cannonball, you can lift it up very easily, I'll tell you. <laughs> um, yeah, next week, let's watch for it. The defence ministers are meeting in Brussels, uh, NATO defence ministers. Big subject is Afghanistan. Uh, interrogation centres, not on the, uh, on, on the deal, but very much what happens is the Afghan army, how far has it got in being prepared to take the handover, which would be happening this time next year, uh, is not far away. Hmm. Okay, and uh, anything else that we... we well, I'll tell you about something that has happened, which I found fascinating at NATO the other day, and that's the Libyan Prime Minister has visited NATO and was given the red carpet treatment. I wonder which of the rebels that are fighting in Syria, with NATO tacit support, are going to get that sort of treatment, let's say, in a couple of years, if, if the civil war is over by then, which I doubt. OK, well, that's it for this week. My thanks to Martin McCauley and our defence analyst, Christopher Lee. If you'd like to join the debate, we're on Twitter and you can tweet us at BFBS SITREP. And remember, you can listen again to this week's programme on our website, bfbs.com forward slash SITREP. Kate Jabot will be back at the same time next week. But for now, from me, Claire Sadler, thanks for listening. Goodbye. Goodbye.